0: At the s the stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's our very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, the doctor, Dr. Iban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm great. How are you? Mate, well, I'm pretty good. I'm not as good this Sunday as I normally am on Sundays, mate, because unfortunately we have some news. And that news is unfortunately... You are, in the next week or so, going to be leaving the Motley Fool to greener pastures. And we are very, very sorry to see you go, mate. I have loved working with you for the last five plus years. Uh, I've loved doing the podcast with you for the past, was it two or three years, I think. Time flies when we're having fun. But you are going to go and uh, do some different things. And I'll give you a chance to discuss or otherwise those in a minute. But, uh, mate, I wanted to say just thank you from me and from our listeners for the dedication, time, and effort you've put into this podcast. This is on top of our day jobs, Um, yours in particular. uh, I've kind of been tasked with a bit more of this media type stuff, uh, generally speaking, but you've been managing this on top of your massive workload and your spectacular stock picking and stock track record for our members, mate. So I want to personally say thank you. Um, I want to say thank you on behalf of our members and on behalf of The Motley Fool for the immense amount of work, the insights, the thoughtfulness. Um, You have educated, amused, and enriched me and all of our members across time from our Platinum members uh, through the services you run specifically through the listeners uh, of this podcast, some of whom are, of course, members, but some aren't. And we're doing this for free. We're doing this for love. And you've certainly brought a lot of love to this podcast, mate. So I am very, very sorry to see you go. Uh, but uh, but I'm pleased, happy, uh, thankful that we've got to spend the last five years together work-wise and, and the last couple of three years on this particular podcast, mate. So thank you for everything you've done. You will be here next week. So this is not your last episode. Uh, we've got a couple of episodes yet to, to go, but we did uh, advise our, our members uh, this week, just gone. So I wanted to acknowledge that on the podcast. And you have a chance. I haven't had a chance in any other public forum to say thank you and, and well done and we'll miss you. I'll miss you, but uh, but I wanted to do that and do that now. Uh, so I guess I, I don't want to put you on the spot, mate, but um, I just I I guess I'll open the floor to you and, and, and invite you to say a few words
1: well uh, first of all i'll say that you've been uh, too generous and too kind and uh, i've said this to um uh, internally to uh to um to everyone in the motley fool so like i'll just you know i'll say this joining the fool as a full-time analyst has he's been tremendously transformative for me not just in terms of the work I got to do, in terms of, you know, becoming a, you know, basically a professional investor, so be doing that at the side, but, you know, it just had a huge uh, impact on myself in terms of the people I worked with, in terms of the impact that the work can have, and the opportunities I got. So that has been fantastic. And the other thing I'll, I'll point out is uh, I worked in many different places and in, <laughs> across different continents. And... I've, I've mentioned this to uh, management, I've mentioned this to other people, uh, that The Motley Fool has by far been the best by a big mm-hmm. mile. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a testament to the, the, the quality of the organization uh, being The Motley Fool. Um, you know, it, it, you know it, has been a, it has been a great pleasure and fantastic. Yeah, and I'm going to be doing something else and uh, also le- looking to recover some time back. myself (laughs) Um, uh, it's been a busy few years uh, and busy is good but sometimes you know you want to also try to recover some time back for yourself Uh, but you know I'm not like I'm not uh, I'm not Going away or hiding, and uh, yeah, uh, but but and these podcasts have been uh, excellent fun uh, to do, uh, and I've enjoyed my time here, and especially the mailbag episode, like the one which has become a regular <laughs> feature, the the uh, this the surprising regular one. Um, but you know, it's, it's it's great fun to hear. It's more than great fun. It's very satisfying to actually hear what people where people are going with their things and um, how people are going and sort of the queries that people have, which, which really helps you think about, you know, how else can you have an impact and how else can you uh, make an impact, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think the questions are a great starting point. So uh, thank you for having me uh, on, uh, on, the, uh, on the Motley Fool uh, podcast.
0: Mate, it's, it's, it's been my pleasure. It's been our pleasure as a, as a business and more importantly, as a listening community, people who are avid listeners of the podcast love the hell out of you, mate, and as do I, and we really appreciate it. Um, it's, I should say for listeners who don't otherwise engage with you, um, you, not only are you, you're a great podcast co-host, but you, uh, run a couple of market beating services. You have a market beating stock pickup and portfolio manager. You have, uh, been our director of research for most of the last, I don't know how many, two or three years. Um, during which time you've managed our investment team, uh, mentored and developed those people. You have done an absolute welter of work, mate, So I'm not surprised you want to get a little bit of time back because, uh, the full is a much better place. Our, our team are a much better team because of our input and, and mentorship, mate. So well done. Uh, Thank you, uh, I know, from the team, but certainly from me personally for everything you put into the business uh, while you've been with us. And again, you are here for another week. So I'm I'm not off the hook just yet. You've got a bit more to go. Um, I I will also say, Doc, you and I have spoken briefly and I'm hoping that you might grace us with your presence from time to time. Uh, We might get you back from, from time to time for a chat. Uh, just to, to get a bit more of a sense of uh, of what's going on in your life, what what you're thinking about, what's going on in the market, our members occasionally may have some questions, either directly for you or maybe questions that you think you are best placed to answer. So uh, if you have the opportunity, uh, we don't know what work situations will 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 we'll change over time and, and what you might be doing or not doing, all that kind of stuff. So no promises, uh, fellow fools. But um, I'm desperately hoping that this won't be the last year here. Well, couple of podcast episodes to go yet, anyway. But after that, uh, I'm desperately hoping this isn't the last we hear from Doc because, uh, you, mate, you, you've—I you've, said—you've—you've you've changed lives uh, literally. Uh, you've certainly improved investing, you've improved investors. You've improved understanding of some of the most important parts of what's going on in the world today. And, and frankly, mate, uh, if no one's on this podcast banging on about Tesla, then it'll be a disappointment. So at, at least, at least you've got to come and do that from time to time, fly the fly the flag. But we definitely will get you back on. All right, that's enough thank, of thank, this. Thank you. Um, thank I will. You. I will have some more to say about about the the, the podcast in next week or so. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to enjoy the last couple of a couple of hours. We've got probably yeah uh, yeah we tend to do about an hour episode. So you've got three hours more of Doc before he uh, rides off into the sunset with the occasional return. So let's mm-hmm. let's make the best of it. Let's start with a question from Dave, mate. Uh, G'day, chaps. Been loving your podcast for three years. Excellent. Oh gee, here's the story. I started investing in September 2018, and right off the bat, I lost 20 percent of my savings. Through three painful months as the market took a turn for the worst. Luckily I had the chance to listen to your wisdom in the context of the situation, which helped me turn this into a great lesson in holding my nerve and in investor psychology. I'm now thankfully sitting on a tidy profit. However, even with this cushion, I was still surprisingly shaken by the recent drop in growth or tech companies, which occupy a reasonable portion of my holdings. We'll talk about this a little bit on Friday, Doc, so it's good timing from Dave. I've always owned consumer staple companies, he says. For example, Unilever, Diageo, P&G, PepsiCo, etc. Some US stocks there. Um, Unilever, the, the household products company. Diageo, the alcohol company I used to work for, for full disclosure. And also for full disclosure, I uh, enjoy the occasional tipple of their products. P&G being Procter & Gamble, another household products company, and PepsiCo. Um, obviously Pepsi, but also a massive snack food business you may not know. So there you go. To hedge, act as a hedge, he says, against growth and tech stocks. And hopefully those being companies in need, even at times of crisis. Yep, I reckon we uh, probably gave the the grog nudge over the last 12 months. Unfortunately, those companies have underperformed the market in recent years, which makes me wonder how I should approach the balance of my portfolio that I hope to act as a hedge against those growth companies and or to serve me well in times of crises. I know Scott has interest in both NASDAQ and Berkshire, which sounds great, and I do, for full disclosure. I'd love to ask the good doctor, how he approaches this as a growth investor. Does he also invest in less growth stocks? And if so, how much? Or does he build cash through selling to pounce on crashes in growth stocks? Or simply write it out, assuming the total gains over long periods of time take care of themselves. Thank you both for providing rationality amongst a sea of madness. And that's from Dave. I love this question, Doc, for a million different reasons. Um, I'll start, I'll throw it at you in a minute, but I'll just reflect very quickly. I love the fact that Dave was able to stick it out in 2018 I'm glad we were there for you Dave so thank you mate and, and well done for doing that I also want to mention uh, or highlight Dave's second point mate which is even even despite that he still got kind of freaked out during the last 12 months and I don't blame him at all right even you and I have been doing this for way too many years between us and I got to say you know that was still a, that was still a scare. I knew what I should do and I did what I ha- what I should have done during that but what didn't feel good it still felt really bad right even though I was probably down 40% at some point we mentioned corporate travel in the last program it was my largest stock before we went into this thing and it lost well from its highs 75% of its value give or take maybe more than actually 80% of its value now back again of course but it felt really really crappy and yes I knew what I should do and yes I did the right thing doesn't make it feel any better so I'm not surprised that uh, that Dave struggled uh, after only three years of investing during the last the last couple of years. Dave, you, you've certainly you've certainly earned your stripes, mate. You've uh, you, you, you're officially an investing veteran now after the last three years. All that said, mate, let's go to you because that's what he asked about. Dave wants to know as a growth investor, given that volatility, how do you manage the volatility in your portfolio?
1: Yeah. So I mean, before answering that question, I would say congratulations to Dave for like I mean, the two points that you highlighted they they are actually they are sort of the seeds that allow you to invest for the long term, right? Basically, yeah. if, you, if you are able to tolerate the volatility, you can look at it and you, you're thinking about the right questions. You are likely to do well over the long term. And that's, that's really the mentality and the mindset. You know? So mm-hmm. that's congratulations on that. Um, uh, well, so I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell Dave a little bit of a journey thing. I've mentioned this before. Maybe about five years ago, I used to actively think about hedging and um, mm-hmm. riding out volatility, right? Mm-hmm. And there are m- many ways to do that. Like you know, you could buy you could buy some instruments, for example. Like you know, if you think consumer staples are going to be um, counter cyclic to say tech, mm-hmm. then you can buy that. Uh, you could keep just keep some cash, right? Cash is a hedge because everything goes down, cash wouldn't go down. I mean, cash is going down <laughs> because of money printing and things like that. But cash, technically, your ba- balance is not going <laughs> to be right. that side, That's a hedge. Uh, I used to uh, buy uh, l- go long on puts, which is effectively saying that I'm basically short the market at that point, which means that if the market it goes down, then I make a profit, which is another way of hedging. So you know buying puts, companies, for example, would have puts on exchange rates and things like that. Companies do that all the time. This is a very standard protocol um, applied by bankers. And after doing almost all of these things, I've came to the net conclusion that trying to avoid volatility, especially as a personal investor, Mm. is almost as good as useless. (laughs) Because, like Mm. nine Mm. out of ten Mm. times, my hedges didn't do anything. Yeah, which is exactly what you would expect, right? It's like insurance. A hedge. Now, people will say hedges like insurance. You only want it when the bad stuff happens, and. Uh, and things like that. So maybe if I had consistently hedged, then eventually when this big COVID crisis happened, I would Mm. have finally made something. And maybe I would have recovered all the money that I have put in towards (laughs) hedging eventually. (laughs) But guess what? Because it was not working, I gave up on it. So I actually didn't make any money off my hedging. So hedging (laughs) is incredibly difficult. Mm. And... So the only thing I do is I have, I try to, uh, when I say like, you know, I have uh, more money sitting in the offset than there should be, um, right. and, uh, you know, we're blessed to have some cash flow that can allow us, you know, because we have two, two income family we can afford to sort of put uh, more money into the market if there's a right. cash, those are the things that we do. So I would, I would pull money that I have that I would normally not invest yeah. Uh, and I know theoretically that if I invest the money that's sitting in the offset, then I'll do better. But that's another—that's a whole different debate because that's you know how do you want to manage your debt is a completely different debate. Not going to go there. I can pull money, so that's what I do. I pull money when I think the market is having a tantrum, <laughs> and that almost always works well because a well, it works well in the point of view that it gives mm. you the sense of control. I like having a sense of control is is a big deal in my mind because that sense of control. Really allows you to make good decisions versus being feeling helpless. So, like you know, Mm -hmm. that's my way of taking control um, of um, of it of a downturn. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than that, I just the other thing I do and is I'll give an example. So, for example, I maybe bought Mastercard shares ten years ago or seven eight, eight years ago or some number of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Mastercard is technically not tech. It's exposed to all sorts of things, right? And what I do is I would let some of these companies just become bigger and bigger and bigger if they're doing well, and eventually they sort of their shape changes, right? They're no longer that mm-hmm. they're no longer that you know yeah. that small agile thing that's you know moving up and down a lot. They become less agile, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of stability to that, like you know, so so if you, so the Procter & Gamble might be a good example, right? If you bought Procter Gamble 20 years ago, you're probably sitting on heaps of gains. Uh, maybe the stocks are not doing as well now, but you're getting dividends and they are not gonna, you know, they're not going to, you know, so I just, I just let things ride and then I see that over time some stuff becomes, you know, blue chip enough. The tech turns into a blue chip <laughs> consumer cyclic, uh, uh, you know, consumer discretionary uh, company, pays a little bit of a dividend and, you know, yeah, so that's what I do. I I don't try to explicitly manage um, volatility. That's at least my strategy. I
0: think, and I think that's the, I think that's a really important doc because, uh, like, I think you are the epitome of the way we should invest if we have the emotional stability, experience, frankly, financial stability to manage that. And I think that's so, listeners, as you are listening to this, that's exactly the way you should be doing it, right? Um, the problem with volatility protection and or hedging is it's designed to smooth out your returns but almost invariably by reducing your total returns in the process. It's kind of how it works, right? Think about a balanced superannuation fund. The idea is it's not supposed to scare the horses. So when shares are up, your super goes up, but not quite as much because you've got cash. When shares are down, your super goes down a bit, but not quite as much because you've got cash. And that's what it's supposed to do. The problem is if you do it over long length, of time you say over 25 years, what's the return of cash going to be? About 1% per annum. And so for all that volatility protection you've got, you've paid whatever the difference between cash and the share result, which might be, say, 10% a year. Let's just pick a number. You've effectively paid a 9% cost to be in cash. You could have actually earned a 9% compound return in shares, but instead you've got cash because you want that volatility protection. And that's completely okay if that's what you want. So if you're an investor who just doesn't... Dave, to your point, if you just want to feel a bit better, if the market's down 40%, you're only down 25%, and, you, that, and that makes you feel better, then great. That's awesome. Go for it. But as you rightly point out, mate, these companies will tend to underperform by definition because what we should be doing, and, and you know, what well, Doc's a growth investor. He's not a growth investor because he wants to invest in growth. He's a growth investor because thinks that's where the best total long-term returns are going to come from. And so it's kind of one of those things, like to not do that would actually be to, to actively choose a lower returning asset because you want volatility protection. And that's fine. That's completely, 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 completely fine. In my own case, I have home insurance. Because if a fire rips through our, our area, my house goes. I'd like to have that covered. Now that's that's a hedge. Because if I never need the insurance, I've spent a small fortune over 40 years insuring my house, and I'm going to look back and go, "Wow, that money was there was zero return on that money." In a different universe, when the house burns down after 22 years or five years or 17 years or 41 years, I go, "Thank God I got insurance. That was useful." Now that that for me is because I can't afford. Well, I can't afford to lose my house, I guess, and take another mortgage, and I, I could make it work, but. The cost of the insurance is worth it because the volatility in my life of losing my house to zero is not worth taking. This is, shares are a bit different though because the market won't have a zero return. There's not, we're not paying an insurance premium to avoid going to zero. Volatility protection is exactly that. You're avoiding the waves. You are paying to sail on calmer seas and that's completely fine. But just remember that sailing on rougher seas, if you do it well, even if you do it averagely, quite frankly, gives you a better return. If you just invest in the index and that's rough compared to cash, which isn't, you'll do better in rougher season than calmer seas. Inevitably, if you pay for karma seas, you are paying literally in terms of lower returns for those karma seas. So I would share that. I think you know your question, Dave, was to Doc and he's answered it beautifully. But just remember that wherever you try and avoid volatility or reduce it, it's coming at a cost. And if you want to pay that cost, knock yourself out. I think that's great. If you're someone who's listening going, yeah, I absolutely want to pay that money. I'm not going to tell you not to. I'm going to say do it. If that's your personality and style and emotional makeup, please do it because it'll save you from doing something stupid like selling out when you freak out. And that's that's worth more than the returns you're foregoing, much more, because it means you stay in the market. Uh, but as Doc said, if you want to maximize your returns, you want to invest in the stuff that's gonna have the best long-term return, and just you know, have your have your, uh, your gavaskon when, when you taking an upset tummy, uh, and, and it gets a bit stressful, uh, and just kind of ride that out. Any more on that, Doc? It was to you, mate. So I want to make sure you get. No, the- no,
1: no, no, no. I I think I think you. Uh, I I think I like your Gavascon is the good point to end it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for better or worse. All right. Got a question from a, an anonymous questioner, and I'll explain why. Hi, Scott. New listener to the podcast and a new share advisor subscriber. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, about time we got one from just from SA rather than all your bloody EO fans, doc. Uh, a couple of questions that might be suitable for the podcast mailbag. It is. Question one I have pretty strict employment conditions, meaning I'm effectively banned from holding any individual shareholdings. Due to the risk of conflict of interest or perception thereof. Now, Doc, I remember when Malcolm Turnbull was the PM, he had to have a blind trust with all his shareholdings in it. I'm wondering if this is actually. Um, is this SCOMO? Is SCOMO emailing us and asking us for, for advice? Is that possible? It could
1: be definitely possible. I mean, possible, uh, isn't it? yeah, but if it's SCOMO, then you, uh, you, know, you should be sending uh, SCOMO a,
0: an invoice. All right. So, so Twitter, who is not SCOMO, goes <laughs> on to say So I've invested in some ETFs. Good choice. What's your advice on building an ETF based portfolio? I bought some of the ETFs recommended in Share Advisor, but are there others that have a bit more potential for long-term growth rather than just a market return? I'm keen to find a way to get some upside beyond market returns while accepting ETFs will more often than not give an average market return. I'm prepared to look at industry-based ETFs, for example. And how many ETFs should I invest in? Is more or less better? I have a broadly equal amounts in Australian Shares ETF, a NASDAQ ETF, the Moat ETF, which is a Morningstar active ETF. He's got a Consumer Staples ETF, an S&P 500 ETF, and a Global Shares XUS ETF. But should I just focus on a few higher growth ones? Any advice? And finishes by saying FYI, although Share Advisor recommends individual stocks, I decided to hold on to my subscription just in case you recommend any ETFs and just to build my investment knowledge more broadly. Just wish I could invest in some of the picks. I can't help you with that. Your employer obviously. ScoMo or whoever you are, but I'm going to assume you're ScoMo. Um, uh, apparently doesn't let you and I'm sorry to hear that. But uh, you know what's funny, Doc? There's actually some, um, we're a funny business because some some investment businesses actually don't let their staff invest in individual stocks for those reasons and make them either invest in the the, the kind of the house fund uh, or ETFs and that kind of stuff. Uh, we're a bit of a eat your own cooking kind of business. So it does actually raise the potential for conflict, but we actually think it makes for a better business and, and a more aligned um, set of uh, investors. We have trading rules, of course, that, that limit what we can do, and when we can do it and what we can do. Uh, but broadly speaking, that's how we're set up. All right. So it's sent to me, but I'm going to throw it to you instead and I'll answer it after, after you do. Um, so we like ETFs and ETFs sometimes are really boring, broad, diversified, low-cost index trackers. An ETF these days is actually more ETFs in the US than there are stocks, that, so, such as the ability to write active ETFs and that kind of stuff. But assuming that our questioner, Scobo potentially, uh, wants to invest in ETFs to beat the market. What do you reckon? What would you say?
1: Well, well, I think you can. It depends on, again, the question really would be what is the market that you are you're thinking about, right? I mean, so if you're thinking about the market as the world market, then the world market index or world it could be the index that you want to follow. You can still beat it. Um, uh, if I remember correctly, I'm just looking at your scorecard, uh, Scott. Um, uh, I mean, the Morningstar MOTE is actually a recommendation long it time is. back. Uh, and I think it is I will guess I'll take a guess and I'll look it up uh, it's more market beating, rough. If that's what you're looking for yeah but I think it'll be at least up twice roughly is my guess and I think I am right <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I think you probably are I, I'm, I'm just actually off by a hair so, you know, I think it was your idea
0: up, too wasn't it when you were working on ShareAdvisor with me
1: it, yeah, it was actually well. You approved it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> easy, mate.
0: When, when you get a good idea, you're stupid not to approve it. That's that's the easy bit. You come up with the, you the hard work.
1: So so, so yeah, the, I mean the market has done forty six. The uh, ASX all ordinaries, uh, the Morningstar's moat has done ninety two, uh, ninety one point
0: six. hang so, on a double. Look at that.
1: Almost a double, just an under. So I mean you not can there. right. <laughs> Close. I will call it a double. So you can. It's it's never going to be as good i think mm, as mm. taking individual shares but mm. you can by being selective uh the one caution i would add is it looks like if you have multiple multiple different etfs then you have to sort of think about what your etf strategy is uh so the the mot one is one strategy um i mean the all if you're buying the all world then you're basically just going to track the all world uh, the all world x mm. us is going to track all world x us so i would I mean, you can selectively pick sectors and uh, pick certain styles, and you can use that to beat whatever market you're trying to beat, and Mm -hmm. it's possible. Um, So, yeah, maybe you want to be a little bit more selective would be my my thinking, but,
0: you know. I like it, mate. I like it. (laughs) It, you asked the right question. Actually, it wasn't even a question I thought of, and now I'm I'm having to reassess uh, my answer because you're dead right. The question of what are you trying to when actually you're trying to beat is a is really important one. You know, what what you know if you're trying to beat the ASX and you think tech stocks are going to grow faster than the ASX, for example, then buying a Nasdaq is an easy way to beat the market. That you know if if you believe that to be to be true or likely, you can't know for sure. I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit about this one. I, I I appreciate and kind of sympathise with the problem. Um, I'm generally not a fan of active ETFs. As a rule, because for normal people, other than other than Scomo, um, because you've got to uh, you've got to have a view on the companies and the valuation of them and their growth, and you've got to do so much work that by the time you've done that, you might as well bought the companies. But I am actually going to make an exception here because there is this is a very specific example of, of someone who can't do that, even if they did that work, still couldn't do it. So I, I don't know, mate. It's hard because. I mean, I I think tech will beat the the average market in the US, and I think that'll tech will beat the average market in Australia. So I think that's it. That's for me. That's a low. Yeah, it's a a reasonably low low risk short putt to beat the market. Once you take an industry specific ETFs outside, and even when we say tech, like you and I've said before, I've certainly said pretty loudly, I don't like the word tech because it's it's kind of weight. You know, everything's tech, and then nothing's tech. So what does it matter? What we're really saying is the companies that are innovating and tend to be tech based tend to be on the Nasdaq. So it's not even it's not even you know are they all tech? It's kind of like think about the companies that are there and what they're doing and how they're changing the world. <laughs> the, it, maybe innovation is better, right? Nasdaq because like, the innovation index. It's probably the better way to put it. So that that's a pretty good place to be, I reckon. But if I had to, if you had to if I had to kind of do a, a ten year view and say outside that, which industries would be market beaters over a long period of time? Would I go consumer staples or consumer discretionary? Would I go energy or materials? Would I go uh, information technology or telecoms? Would I go utilities or property? Once you start doing that. I, over 10 years, that gets really hard for me. Like really, really, really hard. I I think I would do a couple of things. I think, so we've recommended some different ETFs around the place. I like the NASDAQ 100 ETF. I think if you are probably about the ASX, that's what I'd go. I like the Asian Tigers ETF, which is a recommendation you've talked about before, Doc, which is Asia is the code. I own some of that. For, I own both actually for the record. Um I would go those. I think that gives you outside Australia exposure to areas that I think, by virtue of the way they're made up and where they are and what they're doing, are likely to be market beaters. So that's, that's a pretty good... And they're kind of all... I don't, I, again, I feel kind of almost guilty using just tech and then picking two tech indices and saying, that's all you do. But I think those, I, I feel pretty good about those two beating the market over the long term. Other than that, I, I'm i going to start to struggle, mate. I'm really going to start to struggle because I don't know that i pick industry... ETFs or country even ETFs um, and, and hope they're going to beat beat whatever market, as you say, that we're going for. Because not only do you have to get the, the, the kind of industry dynamics right, you also have to know and understand the price you're paying for that dynamic and whether it's a good or a bad price. So let's assume consumer discretionary stocks will grow faster, will grow their profits faster than the market. That's one thing to know. You then got to work out, well, hang on, how are they priced versus the market? And if they're priced higher than the market, is that growth enough to beat the market once you factor in the higher growth and the higher price? And so it gets really, really hard. And again, you've got to analyze almost all the components or at least the vast bulk, the 80-20 rule components to have a sense of how is it valued? What growth potential is there? How much is left? Um, and how much am I paying for it? So if I was going to do it, I think and I can't give advice to ScoMo, uh, but, uh, but I think I'd probably go because I have to do an ETF, I think I'd probably go an Australian ASX ETF. I think I'd go a NASDAQ ETF. I think I'd go an Asia ETF. And I think I'd go a broad US market ETF just because it gives you diversification currency and industry and geography wise. So maybe like an S&P 500 ETF that we've just recommended at ShareAdvisor. Um, IVV is the code. I think that's how I'd probably net it out um, without having the ability to go through and pick individual stocks in individual industries. How, how does that? How does that strike you? Yeah, I think that
1: might that that could work. Yeah, I mean um, that's a little bit more. Um, I think I think it's you are not you're being sector or subsector neutral in that sense and almost like
0: kind of. I I feel like it's, I, I, yeah. Would would you would you be comfortable buying a sector ETF?
1: It, it, again, given I think the price the pro- and
0: volatility and uncertainty of business growth. Like I I just I find that really hard. like the amount of work I have to feel like I'd have to do to know it was likely to be a market beta, I feel like that's a high bar to clear.
1: Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, in this particular case, that might make sense, right? I mean, in this particular case, the person is is restricted from buying individual shares, but could get exposure to their shares via specific ETFs and therefore can do that work. But if somebody didn't want to do the work, then I think it's a different question altogether, because then, I mean, if you didn't want to do the work, then do you want to buy? I don't know, like a robotic CTF. Well, probably not because you know you don't mm. want to do the work to figure out what is being held. That's yeah, the only thing yeah. uh, I'll say, and. Uh, yeah, otherwise, I mean, what you're suggesting is, you know, here's the thing, right? You could buy a robotics ETF, and you could buy an Asian Tigers ETF, and you can buy something else, and you can mix them together, and you mm-hmm. might land up getting the same type of returns as you can by having a simpler strategy. That's
0: kind of my thought, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't know, and you're gonna, they're going to they're going to kind of average out, or at least the uncertainty means that you're not so sure. Yeah. It's probably an easy way to make <laughs> to make money, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, in that sense, you know, if you just buy a little bit of Nasdaq and buy a little bit of like Asia and um, Yep. You know, and uh, the S&P 500, you mix it all together.
0: I mean, probably just doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think we've answered Skomo's second question. Anyway, I, I say Skomo, I'm, I'm kidding for the record. Don't, don't at me, Skomo. I'm sorry. Um, Skomo says, is he investing in ETFs based on the US markets giving me the same exposure as directly investing in the US markets? Again, effectively, I'm limited to ETFs. But should I be looking at US ETFs instead of Australian ETFs based on US stocks? Again, would love to invest in US stocks, but that won't be possible due to my job. It seems like I think the question here, Doc, is, if I'm buying a US-based ETF on the ASX, is that the same as if I bought it directly in the US? And the answer here is a very clear yes, um, as long as the market maker's doing their job. if I mean, it's in Australian dollars, but if you had to convert the US dollars back later anyway, you get the same return. The, the conversion is being done for you on a daily basis. So if you buy an S&P 500 ETF on the ASX, over time, you get the same as if you tr- sent money to the US Bought the U.S. version and then bought the money back at the same time. You get effectively exactly the same return, right?
1: Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, I, I think that's what I think he is, is implying though that the, the 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 number of ETFs available in the U.S. market might be larger.
0: Oh, okay, okay,
1: okay. Yeah, if that's the case, then that's different. But I think that you have direction. already. That is a Good point. Yeah, but you have already nullified that by saying, "Well, you probably don't want to do that in the first
0: place." So. <laughs> but if you are going to, that's a good that's a good place to do it. With it,
1: it yeah, if if you want to do it and you want this, you know, you want mm-hmm. specialist, you know. Genetic
0: editing ETF, you're not going to find that here. Uh, <laughs> then, then you'll have to go find that ETF somewhere else. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, let's get a question from Sam. and I don't know this company at all, but I'm gonna, I am going to want to talk about it anyway because it's an interesting kind of question or topic to talk about. You may know it. It says, I love the podcast, guys, and I subscribe to your services. Thank you, mate. I've got a question for MGC Pharmaceutical." I hold the stock and have enjoyed a great run since the company locked in orders with a Swiss pharma deal. It's early days with brain cancer treatment study, but I can't see the sector reducing. I'd love to hear your opinion on this medtech company. Do you know MGC Pharmaceutical, Doc?
1: I have no idea about uh, MGC yeah. Pharmaceutical <laughs> So like, I'm going to take a pass on it. Um, yeah. Uh, only thing I'll say is, is if, if it's a company that's developing, a, it has a drug pipeline, Mm-hmm. and is signing a deal with another company. That, that's usually a good sign, but you know, you want to, one has to remember that big pharma signs deals with little pharma, many deals. <laughs> they go, they basically farm, it's like farming out research. They farm out their research to a bunch of other people and you know, they're making just basically small bets and it doesn't matter to them whether, you know, well, they would like all of them to be successful, but they know that they're not going to be successful and they're just hedging bets. Um, <laughs> it's slightly different for them versus... Um, <laughs> versus the investor investing in a pipeline a pipeline is still a pipeline it's not a product but i don't know anything about this particular company so maybe it has a product and then that's all fine
0: yeah i mean, that's why i wanted. to you've answered it beautifully because that's why i wanted to raise this one i don't know anything about it either and i we haven't from time to time gone back to some we, we answer 99% of questions we get asked sometimes we go back and say, look we just don't know it and we're not going to be able to give an original view on it because we'd rather say we don't know than actually just make something up because we're asked a question so we've actually we've, we have very very few questions we've chosen not to answer this one I don't know anything about MGC Pharmaceutical either doc but I knew you'd give us a great answer this is this is you know effectively buying shares in MGC Pharmaceutical is is taking a very 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 leveraged bet in a way that almost nobody else does if you're a venture capital firm invested in MedTech, you've got a dozen or 20 or 25 in your portfolio. As you've already said, Doc, if you're a, a big farmer, you've got 10, 15, 20 of these ideas all going around just in case because they know that if they can jag a few of them for a very small investment to put their foot on a potential idea, it could turn to something really massive if it goes well. And so these are these are tough ones. These are kind of, I'm going to say lotto tickets. That might be a little bit unkind, but not all that... Much all that, all that significantly because we have both seen plenty of biotech stocks, farmer stocks that have hoped to, you know, solve the world's problems and just never ever ever got there. And we're in the camp of cheering these guys on from the sidelines because we'd love to think that these guys come up with some great products to solve real significant medical problems for a whole lot of people. And we'd love nothing better than for every med tech company to be successful and and solve the world's problems. The problem, of course, is that it's not all that frequent. And and unfortunately, if you're investing in them, uh, the chance of you actually making a quit out of it is is, is it's a pretty long shot, Doc. I mean, it, it's kind of... This, these are about... A, short of buying a, a little, you know, a small mine or exploration company, this is this about as speculative as the ASX gets?
1: Yeah, like, I mean, I was just quickly... When, when you are talking, I just quickly downloaded the presentation to have a look because I hadn't okay. looked at this. There we go. Uh, so it looks like they have some... They call it a unit. It's a machine that they're selling. Um, and it looks like it's some cannabis, cannab- because they call it right. derived ma- derived it's medicines. Yeah. Um, and they've had these uh, machines being sold. The number of units being sold have actually gone up. And the number of prescribed units has gone up. The number of patients has gone up. So, I mean... It's all moving in the right direction, but I don't know anything about the financials and things like that. So um, I'll just reserve my judgment on it. Uh, so it's not, it's not. Uh, what would I say? It's not, it looks like it has a product that it's selling um, and I don't know what type of regulatory clearance it needs for
0: selling that product. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's good uh, good advice. All right, let's move on to a different question. One, a question from uh, from Juan. Juan says, hey, Captain Doc. Long time listener, a big fan of the inevitable tangents. Thank you, mate. And here's it: we've talked about SPACs very, very briefly. He says, as experienced in the last year, SPACs are now in vogue in the US. And we'll define our terms in a second, but stick with us. Actually, I'll do it now because it'll help our listeners actually understand the rest of the question. So, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies. Did I get that right? You
1: absolutely got that right.
0: And these are cash boxes that are basically, they're companies that aren't even really companies. They're just, they're almost letterboxes full of cash. Uh, you, you, you decide to start a company, you register Scott and then you say to people, hey, guess what? We've got this great new company. Send us all your money and we'll find something to do with it. And they kind of want to say something to do with it. Largely, this is they're looking for companies to acquire and it's kind of a reverse listing kind of vehicle in, in some ways. Um before we go to the question itself, any, any more kind of um, set up comments on SPACs? No,
1: so I think that's it. Like, so basically, it's another... I, I almost look at it as like it's another way in which venture capital is taking companies public.
0: Cool. All right, so one says, As experienced in the last year, SPACs are now in vogue in the US. In brackets, some may argue a bubble, close brackets. And other exchanges around the world appear to want to get in on the action. I was surprised to learn the ASX and ASIC effectively prohibited their Australian version Cashbox companies in the late 80s. I'm curious to hear about the pros and cons of these air quotes shell companies, and what the argument to allow or disallow them was or is. At the rate these are popping up, I doubt my question will be read before the next spec is announced. But maybe it will make it to a Mailbag episode before the doomsayers get their bubble burst. Best of luck and full on from one. Uh, good question, Doc. From one, I I'm a skeptic in terms of, I think a decent number of these will probably go badly for a whole lot of people. I'm old enough to remember the .dot .com uh, boom where these cash box companies were outright laughed at both before, during and after the dot-com boom and, and implosion. Um, companies that raised money with, with little more than a business plan and an idea. They raised a whole lot of money because we're going to do this great stuff on the internet. Uh, of course, the, 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 the crash came and nothing eventuated from those. And of course, they were, along with the likes of pets.com, held up as kind of ridiculed examples of dot-com excess. And now we find ourselves 21-ish years later and they're all a rage again, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, like I think your point is right, mate. There's nothing inherently good or bad about anything, generally speaking. Um, a cash box used well is no different from a VC listed fund saying, "Hey, I'm a venture capital. Send me your money." Um, I, raising a SPAC and doing the same thing is actually kind of no different at some, at some, you know, at a very rational detail level. However. I do worry that maybe this is this is a uh, an example of a little bit of hubris, a little bit of excitement, a little bit of uh, lack of lack of um, what's the word? Uh, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, um, patience being shown or or uh, or conservatism being shown in the way this, this money is being raised. It's kind of celebrities are launching spacs at a rate of knots. I think does Jay Z have one? Someone someone famous has a, has their own spac who really has no right to at least in terms of their public investing track record be raising capital from investors. Um, potentially, it's also Avoiding a whole lot of um, regulations that are designed to protect uh, individual investors. When you know, if you if you if you're raising money to launch a company, you issue a prospectus, you do all that kind of stuff. Um, If you're investing in a fund, you've got to be a sophisticated investor. If you put a spec on the market and you and I can buy and sell shares in it, it kind of feels a little bit like it's uh, like getting around the rules somehow. That's a very jaundiced view, mate. I've been very negative, very cynical. There. Have you got a Have you got a pro? Have you got a a bull case for SPACs?
1: Oh, look, I don't disagree with you. Like, I mean, to me, a SPAC is like basically a mining explorer, right? Yeah, I mean it's, a, yes, it, yes. It's, it's basically like a mining explorer that is going to explore and find something and eventually going to become like the next PHP. Um, so good the point. I think with SPACs, the only thing I can say is, I mean, you basically have to realize that you're making a bet on a team, right? Oh, yeah. And you're making the bet that the 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 key investors are going to find the right thing. So that's and 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 that they're going to find the right thing, buy it at the right price, merge it mm-hmm. at the right price, and, and then that the effective they're there for the effective ride. To and if that's the case, then the SPAC is interesting. Otherwise, the SPAC is not. I mean, I would also look at them very skeptically. I actually do not own any SPACs in my portfolio, um, largely because again it's just sometimes very hard to make a case like Mm. sometimes people are buying because they think that this SPAC is going to actually acquire that private company and therefore the value is up but that's speculation because you really don't know if it's going to acquire that company or not (laughs) right and and then eventually and then of course there's the other thing is uh, you have significantly less disclosure from a SPAC you don't have the prospectus. And, you know, even if you don't expect to be an IPO investor, which most retail people won't because you won't get shares in the IPO, mm-hmm. um, even post-IPO, right, how do you invest? You need to, you need, you know, you're basically basically investing based on the presentation with yeah. significantly less disclosure. So you really have, to, you're really betting on the team. And, and And that's the bet. Like, I mean, you know, it's, yeah.
0: It's funny too, mate, you know, like I think that's, I think, that, I think you've highlighted really nicely both the pro and the con, right? Because what worries me as always with this sort of stuff is a bit like the, the Wall Street bet staff and all this sort of thing is, like I'm we're massive fans of democratizing investing, right? We want everyone who wants to invest to be able to. But it's also important that there's the appropriate guardrails around to avoid new investors in particular being taken for suckers by people who are there to basically screw with them because they can. And I'm not saying SPACs are necessarily that, but... I think to your exact point, if you could find a way to invest with some of the greatest investors, using a SPAC, trusting in their investing, and going, you know what, this is awesome. You know, you're know, you a massive David Gardner fan, as am I. If, we, if David Gardner launched a SPAC, we'd happily throw some money at him, right? Um, and say, great, great, you launch your SPAC, awesome, David, here's some money, <laughs> go and make me a fortune. And, and that's that's awesome, right? And and that makes a whole lot of sense. And no, it doesn't mean he's necessarily even gonna be right, but, but good chance, he'll do really well. Others where you know if it's a, I don't know I don't want to keep saying Jay Z because it's probably not Jay Z it's probably somebody else but my my knowledge made of of uh, pop culture is not as good as it used to be put it that way um, when it's kind of like hey guys I'm really cool I'm launching this thing throw me your money I'm going to be great and people go oh cool I like that guy I'm going to throw him some money it's kind of a bit Wall Street bets ish right it's kind of a bit GameStop it's kind of a bit ah uh, you know it's not there's there's not a lot of sober investing process going into that and that's what that's what worries me a little bit about spacs is. Um, a good idea or, a, you know, it, it, if you're going to try and take advantage of people, SPACs is how you do it. If you, if you were nefariously minded and you had the ability to raise that much capital, I think you'd use a SPAC, wouldn't you? You would have to do a prospectus. You get it in the market. You get a whole lot of people throwing money at you. Um, you can't take that money necessarily, although there's probably some. You know, you probably get paid you know for fifteen million dollars a year to run your spac, so you get that, and then you probably got a management agreement that says you get fifteen percent of any upside. And so you kind of go, hang on. Well, if I get people to throw me some money, I get a massive salary, I get a ch- share of the upside. If it goes badly, I've still got all that money, and I didn't put anything at risk and make it work. And so at some point, I just, I just, I, I worry a little bit that investors. Are going to get caught up. And now there is democratization happening. It's going to happen anyway. To some degree, I am I am you know, shouting at the tide. I'm trying to hold the tide back. And that's not usually a really smart thing to try and do, because it's going to happen. But I don't know. I just it it, it worries me that, you know, this is being used. And this, let's be honest, SPACs exist because People are trying to exploit a loophole to do it in a way that the advantages of them. No one's launching a SPAC for me for my benefit, right? They're doing it for their own benefit. Otherwise, they'd launch a VC fund or a private equity fund, or they'd, they'd buy, they'd, they'd run a normal company. Um, they're doing a SPAC because it works for them. The people who are behind the SPAC want it to be a SPAC because it, it's, it's a better structure for them. And again, a bit like we talked about Kerry Packer on Friday, you know, buying from Kerry Packer not a great idea. If someone's launching a SPAC, just be, just make sure. That it's genuinely in your interest to invest in it, rather than buying into the hype, buying into their cool ideas, and maybe just maybe getting taken for a ride of the results. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. Like, I mean, for just most people, yeah, I think for most people, you really need to know taking on riskier bets doesn't necessarily result in you know higher returns, right? So. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yes, um, exactly. that's, that's, that's a really important point. That, to, that,
1: that's, that's really the thing, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you you know, that one explorer is that's going to become the BHP, yeah. the question is, can you find it? <laughs>
0: correct,
1: correct. Right? So if you can't find it and you have to touch so many other explorers that are not going to be BHP, well, you've got a problem then.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's also worth mentioning, I think, um, Mark Andreessen behind the venture capitalist Andreessen Horowitz. When he talked about the, the dot-com time, uh, basically said none of those ideas were wrong they were just early every, he said, I think he says every one of them I, I don't want to misquote him but pretty sure he says every one or maybe the vast bulk or almost every one whatever he, his phrase was almost every one of those ideas came to be something pets.com which was the absolute I said, post for ridicule during the dot-com era guess what Amazon now owns pets.com as a domain and the pet care online industry is phenomenally huge I order dog food every couple of months from Pet Circle here in Australia it, it was a great idea it was just too early and yes, being early is as is, is, is bad as being wrong. And so I guess I wanted to put both those points side by side to say, just be careful with those specs because even if the idea is right, if you don't really understand the likelihood of that idea going, coming to fruition, just be careful because buying pets.com in 1999, even if you held it right through, you still lost money. You know, or you didn't make as much money um, because the right time to buy at the right price was later, not then. So just don't don't get too caught up in the, in the hype. My question from Josh. He says, firstly, as a subscriber to Share Advisor, Extreme Opportunities, Dividend Investor, Hidden Gems, and Everlasting income. Jeez, thanks, Josh. I'd like to extend my thanks and commend you fellas on the job you do. Thanks, mate. The varied investing styles of each of you, as well as those of your colleagues, has had a significant effect on developing my own and has greatly added, aided me in building a share portfolio of significant value. Thank you, mate. While I don't always agree with each of your perspectives, he says, in brackets, nor do the two of you, that's fair, they're always well thought out and reasoned. Well, docs are anyway. And this kind of responsible, civilized discourse is so very rare in the world these days. Thanks, mate. Anyway, he says, to my question, the JobKeeper program was undoubtedly a lifeline for the economy, imperfect though it was. Now that we're somewhat towards the end of the pandemic and with reporting season coming to a close recently, it's become apparent that many companies who received JobKeeper posted large profits in direct contrast to the forecast losses they claimed in order to be eligible for the payments in the first place what are your thoughts on the growing calls for these payments to be repaid? I thought it raised some interesting points around corporate community responsibility and ethics. So now we're answering investment questions, Doc. This one's a a kind of ethical slash policy question. Full on. Josh, Josh, thank you very much for the kind words, mate. Very, 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 very kind of you. Uh, We do our best um, and... You know, we, <laughs> all we can do is our best and hope that it makes sense and hope that it helps people. And if it has helped you, mate, then we're we're super stoked. So thank you. What do you reckon, Doc? What's what's the what's the ethical moral quandary and how do we solve it around JobKit? Oh jeez, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to solve ethical. So, like, I have a I have an
1: objective view on it. I'll not call it an ethics view. Here's the thing, right? I think each company that predicted that they're going to have a revenue loss. I would like to believe that they did that, uh, given what they knew. Like I think yeah. here's—I think. Uh, let me rephrase that slightly. Okay. I think it's very easy to look now with the full benefit of hindsight and oh, say you know, we had, you know, we have significantly less number of deaths. We had we uh, controlled COVID really well. Mm. It could have been significantly worse. We don't know what else could have happened and when the program was put together the program we had many times we have said this program was put together very quickly it was probably mm-hmm. not the perfect program but at that time what we had said and i think that's still true is quick action not perfect action was actually the the key and Absolutely. i think 100% points for that now those companies that put their hand forward saying like look you know we think this is going to happen we think this is our forecast And they qualified because that was the qualification criteria. They qualified and they got the money for it. So now, should they give back money? I think it's up to them uh, if they want to give it back. uh, Because, I mean, some people... It's not going to be fair if some people are going to give it back and some are not. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I mean, then it's not fair to those people, (laughs) effectively, who qualified but decided to give it back. I mean, you know... um, So I don't know. Like, I mean, some of these things are... I think it, it, it was a good policy for for the situation, and I think companies that qualified, qualified, and that's that. And mm-hmm. I think we should move on from that, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if they have superior profits now, they're going to pay taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And if they're going to pay taxes, well, revenue, that's revenue coming back to the government. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's fulfilling. Uh, you know, and then again then even for like a couple like JB Hi-Fi and things like that that did really well I mean they were shut down right the malls were closed correct, for periods of yeah, time yeah. Um, the fact that people bought online doesn't necessarily mean that um, you know they would potentially have gotten rid of people or put, laid people off from the workforce because they could and they could have survived still and done still well right I mean mm. so I don't know I think if they played by the rules and they, you know, they did the right thing in terms of, you know, they made the projections that they made, and I think it's okay. Whether or not they pay back, I mean, some companies have decided to pay back. I think that's good on them. I would have been said that instead of paying back, maybe they could have given it to some charity. Um, That'd as, be
0: cool,
1: as, yeah. Yeah, like have given us, you know, like it's instead of making a song and dance or giving it back, you know, if you really felt <laughs> that you didn't need it. Give it to Red Cross or whatever the you know the flying doctors or something right like it, that yep. that could be yep. used for something else so I think that, that's my view I, I, I totally agree that some people will disagree with this view and, and that's cool mm-hmm. um, that's what I think
0: so I I love that answer doc I think that's that's really important I wrote an article so if you want to Google are they really profiting from jobkeeper um, that's the title of an article I wrote on January 14 so a couple of months ago Um I so here's what I worry about, mate. You you mentioned the fact that we couldn't have known what else was going to happen at the time. We couldn't know how bad things were going to be. We you know, looking back, it's easy to sort of work out what's going on and to just to to look at you know what happened and why it happened. Frankly, a lot of what happened happened because of the stimulus. So saying you know, shouldn't they pay back the stimulus they got because they got stimulus? Like well, without the stimulus, they wouldn't necessarily have got what we got to. So not only can you not know what would have happened otherwise, but the very stimulus we're talking about was an integral part of keeping the economy afloat. Here's what, look, easy to say, company X got $50 million in JobKeeper, they made $100 million in profit, therefore JobKeeper paid half their profit. That's absolutely true. It's unquestionably true. The thing that I think people miss on this a little bit is, and I'm not saying Josh missed this, he's asking an outright question, he may well agree with me for what it's worth, so I'm not talking about Josh missing it, is that this is a job saving program, quite literally, JobKeeper, as it says on the tin, not a company keeper program. And why that's important? Yes, the company's got the money. I possibly would have even done it differently given it straight to the workers, but let's let's put that aside. Let's say you're um, uh, docsdetailing.com, right? And you have 20 employees. If you're off a JobKeeper because you think the detailing industry is going to go into decline for six months and you go, well, you know what? I don't want to lay those people off. If I, if I sack them, I, I can't keep them on at full pay without taking the money because uh, I think the business is going to go to, to rubbish but I can afford to pay them. If I take the money from the government, it'll keep them in work. So that's good for them personally. It means they can pay their mortgage. They can keep shopping at Woolies and you know, big W and and keep their family fed. And they'll still be here in six months time when the economy picks up so I can get back to business and things will go back to normal. And so they don't lose a job. I don't lose employees. We don't lose the ability to start up again because I have to rehire people who haven't done the job before. So this is, this is good for a whole lot of reasons to keep people employed in the economy ticking over. That was the whole idea. Now let's say docs detailing. That's the expectation, right? Because everyone expect like the, the stock market fell forty percent. It didn't fall forty percent because people thought the economy was going to go well, right? Like if you think companies themselves made bad forecasts, the the, the stock market got this horribly, horribly wrong. It fell forty percent and then has gained almost all of it back. Um, in in almost well less than twelve months now, it'll be twelve months in about five days' time. Um, it'll be three days by the time you listen to this. Uh, you know that that, that everyone expected it to be terrible, and so docs detailing took the money rightly kept the people working rightly <coughs> Excuse me. and then turns out the detailing business was great and there was tough three months in march and early april but then it got back to back to normal by june it was great and in fact it was so good and people had so much money because they weren't traveling everyone got their cards detailed so uh in fact doc actually made more money than he expected let's play this out now next time it happened if doc has to pay the money back now you could argue that he should and maybe he should Let's play this forward next time there's a a pandemic or some big recession and JobKeeper is unveiled the second time. Doc says, so hang on. If I take the money, I might have to pay it back. If I lay off the staff, I don't have to pay the money back and I know exactly what my bills are going to be. So I'm going to lay these people off and I'll I'll get them back later because I don't want to have to be faced with a situation where maybe I've got to pay the money back if I earn X dollars. And it doesn't have to be great amounts of profit, right? Just some profit, even even some businesses were profitable. People are saying, well, you got JobKeeper and you're profitable. Some were profitable specifically because there was JobKeeper. So what worries me about this whole thing is, and the opposition are running really hard on it. And I've, I'm, I, mate, I, <laughs> as you know, doc, I take the long handle of both parties equally. Um, uh, I think the opposition are doing a terrible job here because yes, some guys got money. Yes, in hindsight, they, they didn't need it. But next time around, don't we want the stimulus to work just as effectively as it did last time? Do we really want 5, 10, 15, 20% of the companies to say, no, 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 I won't take JobKeeper, but I'll lay people off because I don't want the grief? What if JB Hi Fi had said, I'm not taking the money. I'll just lay off half my staff and I'll try and get it back later if things go well? What happens? Well, there is no recovery because those people are out of work. And so the recovery takes six months longer. The economy goes even worse. Unemployment's even higher. It takes us, you know, 24 months to get back to normal rather than 12 months. And that was because we wanted to say $50 million giving JobKeeper to JB Hi Fi. And I just think it's one of those things where you've talked about, Doc, you talk about global maxima and local maxima, right? And I'm not, I won't even pretend to know the theory behind that stuff. But even, even my small layman's brain gets the idea that yes, we could have made sure JB Hi Fi didn't get more money than they should have, but at what cost? And so I, I just reckon stimulus, you want it to be a shock and awe, right? Is ammunition wasted? Yes, absolutely. Is spray bullets everywhere? But if it gets us back to where we are now, less than 12 months later, man, you've got to really want to try and screw with this system hard. You know, do we want to be that fragile that maybe it's not enough money? Maybe it is. I you know, I, I guess I, I get the idea. I really, really honestly get the intent. I, I absolutely appreciate the fact that people say, hey, this feels like you know, some, someone got too much. And we hate people getting too much money, particularly taxpayers' money. We desperately had it. I do it too, right? I don't want to waste it. As Doc give it back to the taxpayer, give it to Red Cross, sure. But I don't want the next recovery to be hurt by companies second guessing whatever stimulus they get just in case they have to pay it back. I think that'd be a terrible outcome. I think we'd actually end up being really super counterproductive or at least maybe, right? And even if I'm wrong, do we want to take the risk? Do we really want to roll that particular dice? I don't reckon we do. Doc?
1: I think I love that point actually. And I like, yeah, I think you basically nailed it. I think the psychological impact for future would be detrimental to anything that form I think that's you're dead on right about this like I mean yeah I don't like the money being wasted but I think that is that is spot-on that you know you don't want people to be second-guessing this and we should just forget about it it's just and and we have a good recovery because this happened and maybe and maybe people have excess money maybe people who worked at JB Hi-Fi got extra money good for them well they're spending that money Great, uh, and I and they're going to spend
0: it, right? Unemployment yeah. should be lower because they're spending it. E- Economic activity yeah. higher because they're spending it. Um, yeah. Fewer yeah. people yeah. out of work. Like, it it just—it just makes. It's, I don't yeah, know.
1: and and I think we can argue that some people didn't get it and things like that. It's not fair, but you know, in many, <laughs> the overall. I mean, you want to be mostly fair, mm. fair, right? I mean, if you try to be like one hundred percent fair, you're not never mm. going to get there because it's just very difficult. It's just yeah. too complex a problem. So I think, yeah, I think I'm with you on that one. I think I think more or less the program has worked has done its thing and you know we can yeah yeah we can quibble about it but i think if quibbling about it is it's going to create all those things that you
0: pointed to kind of missing the forest for the trees right
1: yeah i think so i think so i mean it, it's worked beautifully and that's we should be thankful that it's worked beautifully right
0: yeah i i I mean, look. Politicians have to do what politicians have to do, and it's easy to play the fat cat corporate game. I go, and for for the record, I don't think I own a single company that benefited from JobKeeper in that way. Um, so I don't know that for sure. I have to say so. So don't hold me to it. I mean, cor- uh, corporate travel, I, I think got JobKeeper, but they made a massive loss, so they're not they're not benefiting from it. Trust me, or at least they're not making money out of it. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I may own one or more that did. Um, so I won't I won't. But I, I don't think I'm only argue my own book here. I think I'm talking more broadly from a policy economic perspective of what we kind of want to see happen so if i if i'm getting that wrong my apologies um i you know i i get accused of lots of things of being biased for a whole lot of reasons for a whole lot of things uh and can i tell you I, yeah it just it, it's not it's not the case i don't know i don't believe i'm benefiting from it whether i am or not as you say mate it's it's not even the companies right it's the jobs that were saved it's the people that would have otherwise may have been laid off that weren't um i think we want to be a little bit careful that we don't try and make play too many political games and, and kind of miss the miss the story
1: yeah, I think so. I think the, yeah, the employment point, I think, is spot on. I think that's that's, that's really
0: the key. Now, folks, let's finish where we started because we've now got officially two episodes left with Doc. As a full-time fool, he will be back. He'll always be a fool, just not an official employed one. And we've got a couple of episodes left. If you want to get your question answered by the good doctor on the mailbag, you have exactly two episodes to go. So do this for me. Jump on to Twitter. Follow Doc, because even after he's left us, his his tweeting will be spectacular, so don't miss that. At Anirban Mahanti. At TMF Scott P is my Twitter handle, and at The Motley Fool AU. Jump on Twitter, sign up if you're not already. It's a really cool platform. Send us a question, leave us a comment. Enjoy, engage with, in chat with us. Uh, Doc and I sometimes chat to each other via Twitter or with third parties kind of back and forth, which is fun. Uh, sometimes we have the same view. Occasionally, we don't have the same view. So that's also, that's also fun. Uh, jump on Twitter. If you're on Instagram, Doc is not there. Doc, I, you know, well, I always have my biggest regret about you leaving. One of my biggest regrets about you leaving is I haven't got you on an Instagram before you left. Are you, can you at least give it as, as a parting <laughs> gift for our listeners? Are you going to do it on Instagram? <laughs> no, so oh,
1: I am I, so close. You know, I, I, I have a my 12 my year old daughter. I am just She she's on Snapchat, and like she just called me. She told me the other day, so I said, Now, oh, what's the difference between Snapchat and this and that? And she said, oh, You won't get it. You, you're, 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 I have been told what's for boomers, and yeah, yeah. I, am now, I am now a boomer. I felt really like, Okay. Like I mean,
0: you're not cool and, enough, yeah, Dad.
1: And 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 you know what? This is I, I didn't give this response. I'll put this response here. Uh, so on on you know, um, Snapchat doesn't do emojis. It does these streaks where you basically take pictures and they you know they put filters on it, right?
0: Right. Okay. I mean,
1: it's, I mean, what's the real difference? Like, I mean, emojis. Filtering and they're all the same, right?
0: <laughs> like- you, you, you won't understand, Dad. That, that, that's, I think, the quote uh, of, the, of the podcast. So, anyway, so you I'm won't get Doc on Instagram, unfortunately, nah. much to my chagrin, but you can follow me. I'm at, at TMF Scott P, the Motley Fool, at the Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, everyone, even the boomers of us are on Facebook, Doc, um, at Scott Phillips Money or at the Motley Fool Australia. Leave us a question, um, send us a comment, send us a direct message, any of those platforms. Uh, you can get to us that way. You can also send things we post. Uh, so, do that, please. Make sure you follow Doc because he's, he's, he's worth a follow. He's posting some, some great stuff, including your solar panels. that are on fire, mate, I saw during the week. They My solar panel, so,
1: Yeah, This is, you know, every Australian, mode. if they can afford a solar panel, you know, we, uh, bless with so much, sound, we should just put a solar panel. These, these these days, the solar panels are so good. They can yeah. generate power even like on the, days like this. This is like pretty amazing.
0: So they, can I, On an ROI basis, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to make an outlandish comment, mate, because I've not researched it. I don't know of a better ROI opportunity for your dollar, dollar for dollar. I, don't, I can't think of any place where you get a, more, a higher guaranteed ROI than solar panels right now. Is that, is that reasonable? I think b- batteries yeah. may be different, but pure panels, they pay themselves back so stupid fast. If you don't have panels on your roof, I'd, I mean, some people can't because they're in units or renting, but yeah. if you can and you can afford the upfront cost, it's a bit of a no-brainer, right?
1: Yeah, I think you could you could pay your panels can pay off. Like, there's a lot of tricks here because I mean, it depends on who your energy retailer is, and yeah, people, yeah. you know, there are floors on the price, and you yeah. you can do the math. I've been trying to figure out exactly what my retailer should be uh, because you know there are like you can get forty cents for the mm. first three hundred kilowatt hours with certain suppliers or certain retailers, right? And then you can do the yeah. math as to you know how that works out. But yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, I think it makes sense if you've got like I mean, three and a half years. I think you can pay off
0: a, a reasonable. That's um, crazy. That's a that's a twenty five percent return compound. Yeah, it's phenomenal.
1: It's, it's phenomenal, and then after that, it's it's basically
0: free. And yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it's even better, than that, exactly. It,
1: it's it's free, and you're basically getting paid. Uh, you know, you're not paying an energy bill effectively, um, and you can actually get a check back from your retailer for mm-hmm. the energy that you feed in. So. Yeah, like I mean, it's crazy. and I guess it's just a good thing to do. I think it's a, it's a, if you can afford it, I think it's a, it's a really nice, cool thing yep. to leverage the the sun, uh,
0: free resource in that sense. Oh, good for the environment, good for your back pocket. I, I like not everyone can afford the upfront cost of panels. I get it. Um, I, I, I said, <laughs> you know, I would almost say to people, don't invest for three years, go and put panels on your roof and then invest the savings in your solar power for the rest of your life in shares. I reckon you'd get a, that's better, juicy, juicy returns. And by the way, great for the environment. Like just, I don't, I, I, if there's a downside, mate, I don't know what it is. It, it's just spectacular. Yeah.
1: And, and there are some actually, I've seen that there's some now uh, good in, you know, you can get some really good installment plans as well. Like it's okay. almost like buy now, pay later. <laughs> <laughs> there you so go. Uh, not be quite bad. that. <laughs> Not quite that category, but you can like it, it, it can still be worth it if you even if you want to pay it in like you know in installments. So
0: yeah. That was an enormous tangent, but that's the sort of good stuff you're gonna get if you follow Doc on Twitter at Anirban Mahati. All right, that wraps this up. Before you go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money Podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And of course, if you do subscribe, you won't miss Doc's final week with us at the podcast or the week after a brand new guest host. Let's leave that hanging for a minute. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five. Give Doc a farewell gift of a five-star rating on iTunes. Let's push the podcast to the top of the charts as a thank you to Doc for all the hard work and effort energy he's put into the podcast over the past few years. And of course, please do tell your friends. We're sure they could use a little Foolish straight talk too. You can get a dose of Foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. You will get some marketing from us on that as well. So, fair warning, fair disclosure. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. In the meantime, full on. Full on.